Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with Shirley Sherrard. Mrs. Sherrard is, well, she's just one of my heroines. She's somebody, when I've, I've heard about her history for the last five years, when I met her husband uh, and her at a Federation of Southern Co-ops annual meeting in Alabama, and got a sense of her history, and I'm so glad that she's on today so we can talk about it. But, Shirley, before we talk about – well, first, good morning, Shirley. Good morning. <laughs> so we, before we talk about your history, can I ask you, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris coming in, um, with all of the work that you've done in Georgia to get the two senators elected and get, well, get more people out to vote and then those senators elected, so we have the House now – the Democrats have the executive branch, the House, and the Senate. What do you see for the future? What can you predict for the future, particularly as it relates to farmers and cooperatives? Yeah, so let me say that we, just because we've been able to get Biden and Harris elected, and because just because we have the House and the Senate at this point, it doesn't mean we have to stop working. Uh, we The job is not complete. We have to continue to work at the local level for the changes we need to see there and have that move on up to them. Now, we have to keep their feet at the fire because we are the reason they are there. And I've seen so many times in the past when we've worked hard to get people elected and we thought, Life was going to change. We thought Earth was going to move, and none of those things happened. We did the job and thought that was the end of it, that, that things would happen simply because we put people in place. I'm expecting a lot from them, but I also know that we can't stop working at the local level for those changes that we know we need to see. Got to keep and working at the local level. Okay. That's right. You know, okay. it, it takes me back to... <laughs> You know, I worked really hard for integration of schools. We thought that was the answer. All of us thought that was the answer because our schools suffered. We didn't have what we needed for the education of our children, we felt. We didn't realize what we had, but we fought for integration. And then when schools were integrated, we thought that was it. And now look at where we are. We almost need that fight all over again. So we stopped doing what we needed to do to to make sure it worked for everyone. So that's why I'm saying we have to work at the local level. We can't stop working at the local level because that's where the real change will happen for us. Keep working at the local level. Keep organizing. Keep the fight up. Keep going. Keep moving. That's, yes. that's the message. Yes. Okay. 
So in West Virginia, where I grew up, Shirley, uh, we integrated in 1955. I was in the third grade. But my mother was from New York. My father was from West Virginia. I told my dad that the best thing, he, the best decision he made in his life was meeting my mother in New York and convincing her, <laughs> even kidnapping her to bring her to West Virginia. But her <laughs> yeah. view was that white folks were, because she had grown up with white people, she had gone to school with white people, and so it was okay. And so we went to the school that was closest to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that helped to change my life in both understanding white folk and really being called the N-word almost every day. So, yeah, I got that. And you were fighting for it. So it was after after 1955 you were fighting for integration. In oh, yes. Georgia. we Schools in my area, schools here in my in the county where I grew up didn't really integrate until almost 1970. Now, my, my sisters during the summer of 65 when we started the civil rights movement in our county, um, 17 people integrated the white school that year and caught hell. You know, every yep. day in the in in the schools, and and didn't have the real support that was needed to get through that. In fact, they would have to ride the bus to the black school first, and then be bused from there to the white school. And on rainy days, the people at the black school didn't even want them to come in the school. They were so afraid. They would not allow them to come in. And there were many other things that happened. You know, folks, I guess they had every right to be afraid when you look at the county where we came from and the history of the sheriffs and so forth in Baker County, Georgia. But, um, you know, we didn't provide that ongoing support that was needed in the educational system because we thought the answer was integration. Yes, I understand that fear because that's, that's what we had. We had to fight. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. my father taught, there was three boys. He taught us how to fight uh, real early on. So we, they, white people wanted, the white boys wanted to fight, and we accommodated them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's unfortunate But because of not only the physical fights but the emotional fights. That's the, those mm-hmm. were the hardest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I got that. I, I lived that. And it didn't solve the problem we thought. Matter of fact, we lost a lot. Yes. Black schools. Yes, we did. We had teachers who really cared, people who who pushed us to excel and then reach back to help others. That was one of the main things I grew up with in the church and in the school. You, they expected you to do re- well to represent people in that county and to reach back and help others. Well, those things. It'd be nice if we could teach that to everybody out there today. All these young folk. Yes. Teach us to excel mm-hmm. and then reach back and help others. So yes. you said the church was big and the school was big in your life. Yes, yes. I always say that those, the doors of, of our church didn't open unless our family was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how many brothers and sisters did you have, Shirley? I have four sisters, and I have one brother. My my mother was pregnant with my only brother when my father was murdered. In fact, he wanted a son so bad. We, if I, you know, he's a farmer, and kept having girls. So there was a break in there. But eight years after my youngest sister, my father convinced my mother to try one more time for the son, and. When the doctor confirmed the pregnancy, he was giving out cigars, saying this was the boy. (laughs) 
He didn't live to see him. Okay, so you mentioned your father's murder. How did that happen? What happened there? Yeah, it was during the time that the Albany movement had been going on since 61, since 61, 62, and the movement in surrounding counties. But SNCC had not come into Baker County at that point, but my father and others were talking to them. So I don't know what motivated this man to to shoot my father other than my father stood up to him. This farmer had... Um, a farm near ours, and some of his cows had gotten into our pasture in 1963. And here he was in 65. They rounded all but one of them up. It was so difficult with that one. He just left them there. And then in 65, he he came for the cow, but instead of his cow, he's trying to claim five or six of our cows. And um, according to the others who were there, my father argued with him, telling him, no, they were, they were not his cows. And he finally started going, walking away, saying, we can settle this in court. And um, when he got near the truck, he turned around to say something. The man shot him. You know, the grand jury refused to indict the white guy, saying there wasn't enough evidence to say it was murder. Now, I made a commitment on the might that if you, if you read about the history of Baker County, Georgia, it has a a really bad history in terms of the sheriffs and the lynching of of Bobby Hall, who was a relative in our family in in the forties, that led to the whole proven intent. So if you go back and read the case Screws versus the U.S. government, you read about that case that led to proven intent. So in court, they always cite uh, Screws versus the U.S. government. You know when you're talking about proven intent, Bobby Kennedy would cite that all the time during the Civil Rights Movement as a reason why they couldn't move to do certain things to, to that would aid SNCC and, and the other civil rights group in our fight for freedom. So Baker County has a huge history with the policing, which is yes. up today, and, and lynching um, and the courts. And so your father was shot by a white mm-hmm. farmer over a cow or yes. five cows because he wanted to take four of your, your your father's cows and the one that he left there. Yes. And nobody would do anything about it. They couldn't prove that he took the gun out and shot him, or he just couldn't prove you, it was You murder. had witnesses, but they were black. And the grand jury was all white. So that led me on the night of my father's death. But prior to that, my goal was to get as far away from Baker County, Georgia, and the farm as I could get. I didn't ever want to have anything else to do with farming past high school. But on the night of my father's death, as our house filled with people, my mother's seven months pregnant, I felt as the oldest, there were five girls at the time, that um, I needed to do something. And and I just got away from everybody. We had just moved into a new home one week before my father died. and. I uh, felt I needed to do something, so I'm, I'm, I'm just asking God to help me figure it out. And all of a sudden, the thought came to me, you can give up your dreams of living in the North. You can stay in the South and devote your life to working for change. I felt a calmness after making that decision. Didn't know how I would make it work, but then SNCC came in in June. This was March. They came in in June. I got involved in the civil rights movement and knew this was the path 
to live in true to the commitment that I made. So this is June, March of 1965. Your father was murdered. Yes. You went in solitude, I guess, talking to God and listening for God to talk to you. And you got a thought. Yes. And that thought calmed you down. Yes. So it, it felt like that is the thought. Mm-hmm. Stay in Georgia. Um, so I, I, I got that too, Shirley, because I'm in Bluefield, West Virginia, Mercer County. My grandfather was in the mines. My father was on the railroad. I wanted to get away from there. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to leave. And I did that because my father was not killed by a white man. And so you made this decision uh, to stay in Georgia and stay on the farm and keep doing it. Yes. Um, I didn't want to have anything to do with agriculture, and that's been my life. <laughs> you know, the civil rights movement and, and, and helping farmers and working with farmers through the years, organizing cooperatives, fighting their battles at, at USDA and so forth. It, it became my life's work. And before we take our first break, so your dream was to leave Georgia, yeah. leave farming, father gets murdered, and you have his thought, and you stay there. So do you feel complete having done that now, looking back? You still have more yeah. to do, but looking back? I, I know that this is what I was supposed to be doing. Um, that dream that I had of living in the North was a selfish dream. This has been all about not just me, but our people and, and rural people and farmers and, you know. All right. We're going to be right back. We'll talk more about Shirley, about this dream that she had, this idea that she had. And we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. I have Mrs. Shirley Sherrard, uh, who's talking to us today about her history, her life. Um, WL is a great partner. They've been a partner for seven and a half years now. They say their motto is information is power. In that first month in October, seven and a half years ago, Papa Sin from Senegal said it's not information that you get the power. Information is stored power. But it, it, it isn't powerful until you put action to it. And so we're talking to Shirley about the action that she's put forth now. She's 17. Her father's been murdered by a white farmer over a cow, five cows, and the jury won't do anything. There's no justice. And she said and talked to God, and God said, stay here and work for the folks. Not a selfish idea of leaving and going to the north. That was her selfish idea. She has now an idea of helping. What she was taught in school was she was taught how to excel and then reach back and help others. And that's what she's been doing her whole life, helping others, creating co-ops, helping farmers. So Shirley, you said SNCC came in in June of that year, 65, and you got involved. So what were some of the things that you did early on in, in your involvement besides meeting and marrying your, your love and getting your husband who was working at SNCC? So what else were you doing? Well, that summer, you know, we, of course, the the marching and and trying to get registered to vote, you know, at 17 and a half in Georgia, you can register. Going to the courthouse and being pushed out of the courthouse by the gator, who the sheriff there was known as the gator, as an alligator. Um, Mm. 
confronting him on a daily and weekly um, basis and learning to organize. Um, You know, I have to give so much credit to my husband. You know, he was one of the founding members of SNCC and, and the first field secretary and chose Southwest Georgia for his work. But I have to give him so much credit for being able to learn to organize from him. So, you know, moving into, I didn't know where I was going to go to school after my father's death. Didn't know whether I could go to school because he was the the breadwinner for our family. Um, But I I managed to get to Fort Valley State, which is about 100 miles away. Two weeks after I got there, there was a cross burning at our home. Um, All of these white men in our house is my mother, my three-month-old brother, and four sisters. And they chose our house to come and um, and burn a cross. But we were so organized in Baker County at the time. One of my sisters got on the phone and started calling the men uh, in the county, black men, and they came and surrounded these white folk. Um, anyway, that, that could have been a movie <laughs> for what happened that night. But, I haven't uh, seen that movie. I'd love to see that movie. That, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, being at school in, at 100 miles away was very, very difficult for me. So I ended up um, actually marrying Sherrod and transferring back to Albany State to be closer to home so that I could continue the work while in school. So I started organizing daycare centers for people in the various counties. And as part of our work, folk were being kicked off the land owned by, by white farmers. So we decided, okay, the answer for that is to try to build our own community. You know, so we actually sent seven people. My husband was one of them. Our daughter by then was three months old. You're up at 1968 now. Sent seven people to Israel to look at how they were resettling their people. And with the information they came back with and and what we knew, we created New Communities, Inc., the first community land trust in the country. We got our our hands on 6,000 acres of land and thought we were on a roll. You know, we got a a grant from OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity, to plan this community. It was a major major piece of property, railroad going through with a spur, so we knew where industry would be located. We planned the educational system, the farming system, the health system. We planned every phase of that um, community, but the opposition from white people started. They would shoot at buildings, sometimes with us in them. They started working against us politically so that that promised funding that OEO was going to give to us once the plan was done, the master plan was complete, they were afraid to give us a direct grant from Washington and politically because, you know, they had entered into the congressional record that we were communists and they were fighting us on every turn. So anyway, because we couldn't get the direct money from Washington, they told us we had to go through the normal process, which was local permission, state permission. Mm-hmm. Lester Maddox was the governor of the state of Georgia. He vetoed all money coming into the state to our project. And for the next two years, we faced foreclosure on the property, but finally got better financing in around 1973. 
and we're, we were on a roll. We were farming. We couldn't build the houses. We couldn't build the community as planned, but we could farm and um, make enough money to pay the notes and expand the farming operation. So your father passed. You get this idea of staying and, and helping. Then you go off to school. There's a cross burning. The blacks then circle the white folks, which I've never seen in any movie or any. I have never heard about that. I always wondered why we didn't do that. And so you move back to home and go to Albany State and you get married. You, you mm-hmm. meet this this man. And and Charles is from Virginia. He came down. Petersburg, was, Virginia. <laughs> Petersburg. Yes. Boy, he, he may have know my first girlfriend in high when college I went to Kentucky State and my girlfriend there was from Petersburg, Virginia. Interesting, interesting. So he's from Petersburg. He comes down to southwest Georgia. He helped to form SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. <laughs> Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so he came down in sixty one. Yes. So I guess he's a little bit older than you because in 61, we were about 13, 14. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you all meet and then in 60. Well, he saw a picture of me at, uh, he was canvassing. I was actually in Atlanta at Clark Atlanta <laughs> attending a, a pilot up with Bound program. My sisters told him about their sister. He said, show me a picture. They took him inside. He saw my, my high school graduation picture and told them, I'm going to marry that girl. Uh-oh. 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 Is that love at first sight or smart at first sight? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. And so here you go. He goes with six other people to Israel in 1968. Yes. So 68. Eight, um, and they learn about land trust. Yes. Okay. How did you all get, do you have a sense of how they find out about going to Israel? What was what was in there? What was that knowledge? Um, someone, Bob Swan was someone who had worked on land trust. We had not formed one here in this country, but Bob Swan was from, I think, New Hampshire. And we actually got some funding from the Norman Foundation. The uh, National Sharecroppers Fund was involved. So, you know, there were things going on around. Um, I was trying to think of the name of the community in North Carolina that uh, started. um, I can't think of the name of it now. But there was possibility of funding through OEO for, for exactly what we were thinking of doing. So going to look at the kibbutz and other operations in Israel was what they were going to do. Now, the kibbutz wouldn't work for us because children were um, raised communally. That would not happen. That wouldn't work here in this country. But we used parts of what they they found and parts of what we knew to uh, and made the decision that we didn't ever want to lose the land so one way of holding on to that land was to create this this land trust so that people, for example, would get a long-term renewable lease for the land they would put their home on, and um, we would all own the land together. Okay, so you own the land together, but you wouldn't raise your your the children in a 
community so that kibbutz would not work. So yeah. the land trust of owning land. So that the sharecroppers in the 65, they were getting put off the land, 61, mm-hmm. 65, because if they were trying to vote, white folks was putting them off the land. They were sharecroppers, I guess. They, right. They were working somebody else's land. Yeah. They didn't own it. So the way of doing this is owning the land. And so you all raised the money, got the wherewithal. They get 6,000 acres in yeah. something called New Communities, Inc. Uh, where the co-ops fit in that? You got one minute if you could quickly. Yeah. How we, they- we actually operated as a co-op. We all had a vote. We all played a role in the planning. Uh, for example, the farm committee met every Monday night. We, you know, those we worked on the farm together. Uh, we made decisions together. So we actually operated like a cooperative. All right. So we're going to take our second break here. We're going to come back and talk to Shirley about some of the other things that's happened to her in her life. She's had this major misfortune at 17 to lose her father from a white farmer's hands and with no justice. So we'll be back in a few minutes to talk to Shirley about what else has happened in her life and the lessons learned. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Back everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, the program is Everything Cooperative. We talk about the cooperative businesses in hopes uh, that you will search out a cooperative business or that you will start one. If you have a community problem, co-ops are a way of solving community problems. And we're talking to Mrs. Shirley Sherrard. Shirley, you just a quick you at seventeen. You lost your father. That changed your life. And I, as you were telling that story of Sort of like in, in the in the South, as in, in West Virginia, you have the houses full, they bring food, everybody's there talking about the goodness and some crying, some laughter, some tears. But you go away and you sat and you talked to God. And so one of the things I thought of is that statement that says that if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> your plans were so different <laughs> from yeah. what he had planned for you. <laughs> so you heard his plan in that solitude. And that's what you've been working on uh, all of your life. You stayed in Georgia. You stayed in Baker County, in southwest Georgia, in that corner down there in the southwest, helping farmers, creating co-ops, creating businesses, helping people. So I, I wanted to, to to talk more about you all lost the farm, these 6,000 acres. How did that come about? Yeah. Well, there was discrimination through USDA. Even with the crops that we, to give an example, we were purchasing liquid fertilizer back then. And we were operating about a 2,000-acre farm. But you wouldn't know until the corn, for example, had come up out of the ground and, and matured some that what you purchased was not what you got. They actually were doing something to the fertilizer so that you'd have some that was maybe two feet high, some five feet, you know, all over the field. So you know it was the fertilizer. And we couldn't get extension to, to – they knew what was happening. You know, so it forced us to have to pull a sample from every truckload that we received. Uh, we wouldn't get fair prices at the market for our products. Um, they would say the grade was lower and all. So we encountered all 
We had to look outside of the area. For, at, the, at one point, we were selling watermelons to Safeway in the in the Northeast. So they were putting stumbling blocks up on every turn, and there was no way we could go to USDA for loans that farmers were actually getting. So finally, white there was farmers. a drought. White farmers. White farmers. That's right. <laughs> white farmers. Okay. So there was a drought around 76 followed by a second-year drought. So we went to Farmer's Home to try to get an emergency loan like all farmers, were, all white farmers especially, were getting. And um, we were the guy there said, you'll get a loan over my dead body. It took three years of fighting just to get an emergency loan, but that's, with continued drought, that was too long without proper financing to operate the farm. And then just like Farmer's Home, even to this day, they want a lien on all available assets. And that's what that's what took you know to us to the point where we lost the land, because once they got a lien on everything, they wouldn't let us borrow what we needed, would not finance irrigation for us, and um, had a lien on everything so they could engineer the foreclosure. And in 1985, our assets were worth almost $5 million. They let a, a white rich person out of Atlanta purchase it for $1 million, and then they let him borrow 950000 of that. That new owner came in and dug holes and pushed all of our buildings over in them, and we were gone. Okay, so I, I, I just can't get uh, all, all of my life, all of my 73 years on this planet, I cannot get the kind of hate that sort of says you've seen people, black people, do the right kinds of things in life, come together collectively, buy the land, farm the land, produce products, and then just want to put obstacles in place, sell inferior, inferior fertilizer. Maybe they sold you a truckload and only put half of the fertilizer in there and put water in the rest of it so they can make more money. Yeah. But just sort of hate and then not allow you to get the kind of financing that they're doing to white farmers. So you end up getting a loan, but too little, too late. Mm-hmm. And then, therefore, a white farmer who may have been part of this, he may have been a part of the reason why you couldn't get the loan and so forth so he could get your land and he could get more other than that economic piece, I don't see how this hate, how they just, whether it's Native Americans, Black Americans, Hispanics, women, whatever the group is, how folks just do us so wrong. It's, it's, and they I, do I it and don't understand. feel bad about it. It's like it's the normal thing to do. And they've done that to black farmers, to black people. Through the years, um, as black people, we owned over 15 million acres of farmland. We have less than two and a half million acres now. And a large part of the reason why is the discrimination our people faced through the years. I could go back to my grandfather. Um, he was buying land and, and, um, he was buying land from this white guy. When he took the last payment to him, he's feeling really good about it. He's taking the last payment, and the man telling him, no, you you uh, owe me more money. And he, my grandfather knew this was the last payment. But, 
you know, and turns out he was a relative to the person who killed my father. So if my grandfather had spoken up then, he probably would have been killed then. But he went back home feeling defeated. And my grandmother, who had a third-grade education, every piece of paper she would find in his clothing when she was washing, she saved it. And they actually went through the box and found all of the receipts, you know. So that doesn't happen, though, in every case. We've lost so much because they've cheated us. So economics is, to me, the biggest reason that there's discrimination, but it's also this fear when you say that they don't feel bad about it, and that's because of this white privilege that's showing up today. They are right, and if you're Mm -hmm. white, you're, I don't know, if you're white, you're right. If you're black, get back at old saying yeah. in, in high school. And that's the that's the view that they have. Mm-hmm. So they can come and take whatever it is, native land, native cultures, native ideas, how to plant corn, how, whatever it is, they can take it with no remorse, it seems. Yes. And yes. And we just have to walk away. <laughs> yeah. So you haven't walked away. Mm-mm. Um so that 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 was huge for you. This you you lost the land at six thousand acres. You had droughts. The whole reason of the Department of Agriculture and the farmland. So somewhere in there, you started working for the Federation of yes. Southern Co-ops, which got started in nineteen sixty-seven within the Civil Rights Movement. So how did that come about, and what did you what were you doing there? Yeah, I have been organizing some statewide meetings in this area for the Federation, and then. When we lost the land, you know, here I was at a at a point where, you know, what do I do now? I don't want to give up on the commitment that I made. You know, where will I work now? And the Federation was one place that I looked to. And, of course, they brought me on in July of 85. We The land was actually sold at the courthouse steps in September of 85. And um, so... I just started organizing farmers. I had so I grew up on a farm. I had uh, family members who were extension agents and so forth. When you had a black one for black folks and white one for white folks and vocational ag teachers, so I had learned a lot on the property, the the six thousand acres. But I also had learned a lot through the years. And and when you make a commitment to to stay and work, then, you know, it's on you to also learn as much as you can so that you can be that resource for for people who really need your help. So I just stepped right in there with the Federation. I remember early on one farmer called and said, I got a letter. I'm being summoned to come in for an appointment to the uh, farmer's home office. And I said, okay, what time is it? I'll be there. We showed up at that office that morning. This is, I want to show you the, the atmosphere that I had to work in as a woman. First of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a black woman dealing with black farmers who, you know, I'm young and everything, but I, you know, there were some lessons learned there with them. Anyway, we got, we went into this office sat down, and the the man started telling them that he was going to foreclose on the farm, then the home. The farmer's wife started crying. One of the things I had to do was learn their regulations better than the person they had working in that office. So this guy's telling them what he's going to do, but there were some things he had to do first, and I knew that. So I knew he couldn't foreclose at that point. 
but he wouldn't stop talking. So I finally stopped him and asked him to put it in writing. Well, see, I knew he couldn't put that in writing. So he sat there and started looking at the floor. He, You know, he was sitting at his desk. He was looking at the floor. The guy ended up turning his chair all the way around, looking at the floor, and then came back to eye contact with me and said, I ain't put nothing in writing. So we went at it. I mean, I wish today I could tell you what I said to him. I can't <laughs> remember. I do know that in all I was saying, I realized the farmer's wife had stopped crying. You know, so... <laughs> So anyway, we ended up somehow ending that argument, and he told him he was going to foreclose. But every time he summoned him to a hearing or whatever, I was there to represent him. I can tell you that farm is still in that family's hand today. Those were some of the things I had to quickly get involved with. And then I started seeing that I needed to bring farmers together to work together. So we started organizing cooperatives, and because everything was so racist, you had to look outside of this area for markets and so forth. So at one point, one of the cooperatives that we organized um, at South Georgia Farmers Co-op in Boston, Georgia, was actually shipping seedless watermelons into Boston, Massachusetts. We were working with a group there called Red Tomato that secured the markets for us. So we were doing some things that, that um, you know, farmers didn't have loading docks. Uh, i never forget the first day we were shipping, sending watermelons out. Uh, there are five tractor trailers there waiting to be loaded, and we're still trying to bring watermelons from the field and not didn't have a loading dock. I couldn't take it. I told the guys, I said, look, I've got to go. Y'all tell me how it works out because it was just too <laughs> okay. stressful for me. But you know, we, we, we did what we had to do. So learning is a big part of this. You said you had to learn their regulations. And one of the yes. first reasons I like co-ops was the fifth principle. And the fifth principle is education, training, and information. Mm-hmm. Um, Jessica Gordon-Nimhard wrote a book called Collective Carriage. She's a black lady, a doctorate. And she said that a lot of the black farmers did exactly what you all would meet every Monday night. Mm-hmm. And a part of that was knowledge, learning, continually yeah. learning, continually growing. E- education bees, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of it. And I want all young people, young and old, no matter what age, is, you've got to keep learning, got to keep learning, yeah. got to keep learning. We're going to take our final break. Um, and I knew this was going to go fast. I've got much more questions than we have time. So when we get back, I want to come back and talk about the suit. You all won, what you're doing now, and a little bit more on what, what you said you have to keep the fight up, no matter if Biden and Harris are in or uh, Warnock and Ossoff are in. You have to keep the fight at the local level, the grassroots level. We'll yes. be right back to talk more about it. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We're talking to Shirley Sherrard. 
we only have another 12 minutes, and I've got so many questions. So I, I guess the, the next question that I have is, okay, you lost the land. There was racism. You faced racism your whole life. Uh, what did you do next? I, I understand you sued the government. So how was that like? What was that like after you yeah. were working at the Federation of Southern Co-ops, and you all get together and you sue the government? Yes, for for years we were we were helping farmers to improve their production practices. We were getting other markets for them in order to help improve the income. We were educating them on on each phase of their 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 farming operations and advocating for them, but none of that could stop the 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 loss of of farmland because the discrimination was there in USDA. So we decided at some point there had to be a lawsuit. Uh, we actually chose, no one talks about the earlier lawsuit, but we chose six farmers as a test market. And I won't go into everything there, but finally we came up with the Pickford case. And, um, you know, the government offered to settle. Some of the upstart groups didn't want to settle, but we knew settling that case where we had a claimants and B claimants was probably the best route to go, and that's what happened. So farmers only had six months to file a claim. The lawyers, I feel, tried to push every one of them into filing an A claim when they really had more information and could have been a claimant under B where you had to have more uh, information to um, for your claim and the, the payout could be larger based on your loss. But anyway... The Pickford case filed in 97, 1997 and uh, settled in 1999, and farmers had six months to file a claim in Pickford. You hear Pickford 1 and Pickford 2, but Pickford 1 ended, filing the claim um, ended in October 13, 1999. We had about 20-some thousand uh, claimants in the Pickford case, but that was because farmers couldn't get information. No one advertised the fact that this lawsuit was out there. It was on all of all of uh, organizations like ours at the Federation to try to get the word out there to help farmers to get a claim in on time. A lot of them missed it, and there was a Pickford, too, where um, things were not as good in terms of the payout. But... Um, there were somewhere close to 70,000 individuals who tried to file under Pickford too. So you all won the case. You finally got paid off. If you had been in that hearing room, you would have left there like we did, knowing we had won, but they ruled against us. And um, we uh, appealed the case. Uh, between appealing in uh, 2002 and actually Getting a result from that appeal was, um, it took that us from 2002 to 2006. The hearing officer who investigated our case, oh, it makes you want to cry. It makes me want to cry even today because they got exactly what happened to us. But that, of course, the monitor's office could only investigate and pass that on to the adjudicator. And uh, it took him three years after that. So 10 years from filing our claim, we finally got justice. I can tell you that the hearing officer in our case on July 30, 2002, she was arrested in California later. She was served, She was working as a lawyer in the Justice Department and was not a lawyer. 
you know. But anyway, I could go point by point with things that happened to us during that 10-year period. But finally, we we were notified by our lawyer, Rose Sanders, on the night of July 8th, 2009, that we had been successful. And New Communities actually got the largest payout in Pickford, which is $12 million plus. And as part of the ruling, they told the folks at Farmers Home they had to give us back every penny we paid on our loans. And you took that money and bought some more land. We bought more land. We started looking for land immediately. First, when they called, it's like, Rose, you gotta, you gotta fax this. We, we needed to see the paperwork. It was so unbelievable. We needed to see it, and then we pulled people together who were part of the 6,000 acres and uh, immediately started looking for more land and actually found this place. The The property line comes right up to the city limits of Albany, Georgia. I had a problem because it was uh, a plantation, and the house was referred to as the antebellum home, and I'm thinking, do we... Do why would we want this? But the more we learned about the history of the place after we purchased it, I realized this was where we were supposed to end up. We they took six thousand acres from us, and God gave us a plantation where where so many improvements have been made. You know, the previous owner spent three million dollars restoring the antebellum home. There's an eighty-five acre lake. He had built some cottages on the lake. It's the prime farmland. You know, we have a major operation going there. We are, we are working with and training other farmers. We are developing a pecan co-op right now and, you know, just just still trying to continue with this dream of helping our people. There's not enough land to build houses and, and making a subdivision or anything there, or villages, but it's a place now we can use not only to farm and train people to farm and try to feed our people, but when you look at our history, when you look at the history of that place, which was once owned by the largest slave owner and the wealthiest man in the state of Georgia, he held the largest number of slaves there. Um, look at the history we can teach. Look at what we can do in terms of healing. When we first got it, uh, we decided we would have a blessing of the land ceremony. We brought back in the the Lower Creek Indians, uh, Hispanic, Black, Asian, White, every ethnic group we could could locate in the area to come and perform their blessing ceremonies at this land because we also see it as a place for healing. And then when you look at the civil rights history from my husband and I, you know, gosh, there's so much. We don't have the money to do everything we want to do there, but we just keep plugging away at it, trying to do as much as we can. Phenomenal. So you get keep getting knocked down, but you don't stay down. Oh, no, you, you can't right do that. You, that's right. You can't. You have to take those blows and get up fighting, you know. You can't. <laughs> You can't give up on on the things you can see. And after so many years of work and there's so much you can see, so many experiences you've had that can help you in dealing with things that you're dealing with today. You just have to keep going and keep going. So that gets to the, the last one I want to talk about today. We don't have very much more time, but you got a job at USDA at some point uh, representing 
Georgia, rural Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I understand you got fired. What was that like? Oh, you national attention now. You're national <laughs> attention. Yes, I can tell you that um, I felt really, really bad simply because I thought so many people in this country believed the lie that, that Breitbart had put out there. But just like always, I vowed, hey, I'm not taking this sitting down. If I have to tell one person at a time for the rest of my life the truth, I'm going to do it. But I, you know, that night, that day, I was in the western part of the state with part of my staff. I ended up having to drive back to Athens, which is three and a half hours from where I was. And um, on the way, you know, they're calling me, where are you now, and from the department. And going through Atlanta was when they told me the White House wanted me to resign and just before I got to Athens, they asked me to pull to the side of the road and use my BlackBerry to submit my letter of resignation. A very, very low point. But again, I'm thinking about the president and what effect this is having on him. That's why I said I'll go on and resign. But I'm also thinking how I'm going to fight this. Now, I'm, I'm going home in shame, so to speak. But I started fighting right away. I started talking to reporters as I was driving that night. You know, um, the fight in me came out, and and it worked out. You know, people were able to see and hear what happened, the lie that Breitbart put out there. And um, and this white farmer came to my defense. I had helped a lot of white farmers, but he came to my defense. So we only have a couple more minutes. So I get, I get what I get here is, you get knocked down with your father getting murdered. You get fired. Somebody's spreading a lie on you, and you keep getting back up. You keep getting back yeah. up. You keep slugging. You keep fighting. So, Shirley Sherrard, uh, thinking about you, I went to Proverbs uh, 31, with, uh, the hymn of a good woman, and I think you're a virtuous woman. Like I said, starting out, you're one of my heroes. And it says that give give you everything you deserve, adorn your life with praises, and that's all I want to do. Is you have a wonderful life, keep living it, keep doing what you're doing, keep helping the farmers, keep creating co-ops. We didn't get a chance to talk about why co-ops, what's the benefit of co-ops, and how they work. But I look forward to having you on again. I thank you so much for sharing your your story with us today. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And everybody out there, uh, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively, and I'll, hopefully I can get Shirley back with us within the next six months. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.